Hi, I'm Dan Halliday, and I'm a philosopher at Melbourne Uni. And I'm Christian Barry, a philosopher at the Australian National University. Dialogues is a philosophy podcast with a bit of a difference. My case is a bit unusual. We actually get members of the public... I would really like to see Australians given a fair go... ...to help us do the philosophy. We were on the housing waitlist for nearly four years. I, I wouldn't have anything, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really sure how... Oh, that's really hard. ...where you draw the line, where you say, like, that's not OK, but that is. In this episode, we're looking at the ethics of procreation. That is, what sort of ethical questions come up when it comes to having children? And today we're joined by Luara Frazioli. Hi, Christian. Hi, Dan. Hi, Luara. Thanks for being with us today. Now, some people make better parents than others. Now, that, that's a fact, and it raises a difficult question about whether some people shouldn't be allowed to be parents. What do people think about this? Hi, I'm Russell, and I am 49. We decided to have a, um, a home birth. We had um, two midwives there that have been doing it for 30 years. And then, yeah, she was, as she was coming out, I helped deliver her. And it was amazing. It was such a beautiful, magical moment in my life. And I've always cherished that. Of all the things I've done in my life, this is it's probably the, the best, the highlight. But yeah, it was just it was beautiful. And I just remember picking her up while they cleaned up my wife. And I went downstairs and just held her. And, and she's sort of hungry for milk. And she's kept latching on. Because they said, hold it without your shirt on. And of course, I've got a bit of a hairy chest. So she's trying to find the nipple. And she kept coming up and going, kept spitting out this hair. And then that night, we all slept in the bed together and Ruby was asleep on my chest. And uh, just that, having that, that, that feeling, that being of something you've made, um, it's part of you, is, is um, yeah, it's special, it's really, I can't describe it, it's just, uh, you have love when you're in love with someone, but when you have love for your child, it's, it's totally different. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Hi, I'm Rachel, I'm 23 years old. I myself am not a maternal person Everyone expects women to, you know, want to have children at some point in their life. So I might not be the best person to answer this, but I think people should have the right to have children. But obviously, when it comes down to it, if you don't take care of that child, those rights should be taken away from you in terms of um, custody and that sort of thing. Yeah, so Rachel suggested that while everybody should start out with sort of a right to become a parent, mm. um, that these rights were defeasible. They could be sort of taken away if people act insufficiently well towards their children. Yeah, yeah so two questions about that. One is, well, what does it really mean for somebody to act insufficiently well that we should take their kids? At the moment, we set the bar pretty low, right? Somebody has to do pretty bad stuff to their kids for them to lose custody of their kids. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that when it comes to conferring parenthood on adoptive parents, for example, the state has all sorts of tests and requirements that it places on people to become parents. Why should we treat other people differently? Yes, I think these are very important points about procreation. And, and I agree with Christian that we have to first uh, think critically about where we set the bar for parenting. It might be that neglect and abuse are too low um, mm. standards for us to, to have in place and that actually we should expect parents to assist their children in leading good lives. And with regard to the second question, I would say that uh, what makes a difference between adoptive parents and procreative parents is that uh, procreative parents could only be prevented from procreating by having their right to bodily integrity violated by the state. That might be the principal difference, right? So a feasibility thing, if any, apart from anything else, right? You just, you just can't 
impose the kind of standards on procreation that that we typically do on on adoption in the same way. The only way to do it would be morally pretty reprehensible. I don't know. I want to be the devil's advocate here and say, you know, it's certainly true that you would have to interfere with their bodily integrity to stop them from making children, but you wouldn't have to do that to stop them from being parents, right? right? There are all kinds of things that stages that go on between, you know, actually having a child and raising a child. And if you you know, have all sorts of reason to believe that people are neglectful, that they have, you know, dependency issues and stuff like that. You know, do we not have a sort of a duty of care to protect children from these kinds of environments? Well, that's a tricky one. Um, and I think a lot of this depends on, well, how, how much do you want to trust the state to step in and, and do something, you know, make up for parental failings? The state in this country has got a pretty, it's got a dreadful history when it comes to taking kids away from their parents. States can, you know perform pretty profound injustices when they when they take on that kind of power you know well it's true that this this country has a really bad history when it comes to making decisions about who counts as a good enough parent but we shouldn't shy away of having this conversation about what children are owed uh, as mm. a matter of justice yeah. and i do worry that we've set the bar too low and we should be taking the interests of children much more seriously than we do now. One of the things that this kind of brings up is that, you know, we have this really strong connection in our mind between parenting and the raising of children and biological parenthood. But, of course, lots of children are not raised by their biological Mm. parents. And this institution of just having the nuclear family with children assigned to particular parents, right? That's one way we might do things. Certainly we could imagine that there might be other ways of raising children. And when we actually think about all the concerns we have about justice and equality and, you know, there's a high cost to pay for maintaining this system where sort of one child is assigned to one family and we sort of let these families do basically more or less what they want and can do for their children. Um, you know, this creates inequalities, it creates all sorts of issues. Yeah, I suppose it's worth recognising that the nuclear family is a, is a kind of historical accident. And, you know, by accident, I don't mean bad thing, but it was, it's evolved as a response to kind of historical environmental conditions that have changed, right? You know, we don't, we don't get, go out hunting and gathering food anymore. We don't need the same kind of division of labour between a, a mother and a father that we used to have. Um, society's reached a stage where we can consider other options. Question is, what should these, what other options are plausible? Hi, I'm Tessa, and I'm 18 years old. Nowadays, like people only think about having one, two, maximum three children. Um, so I think oh, we naturally kind of just want to have less children because a lot of women want to work now as well, and it's just really difficult having to take care of kids nowadays um, because of work. However, on the other extreme end of China having the whole one-child policy thing, um, being Chinese myself, I have definitely seen the consequences of it. My mom and I call them the little emperors or little empresses because they are so spoiled by so many older generation in their family. Hi, I'm Sophia. I'm 17 years old. Um, With the one-child policy, we definitely saw that it didn't work at all because there were about 10 million forced abortions each year and also about six million um, voluntary abortions if their child was a girl, if their fetus was a girl. Um, so obviously, like, I don't think that would be like an ethical um, choice for us to um, like implement in Australia. Okay, yeah, I'd like to start with one of the things that Tessa mentioned, which is this um, tendency for parents with only one child 
for the child to end up a bit, what she said, a bit, a bit spoiled. Um, you might also say a bit deprived, right? I mean, one, one thing that, that's good for a child is to have siblings, right? And if we say there's a moral reason for parents to reduce the number of kids they have, well, then we're effectively saying there's a moral reason for parents to deprive their child of a sibling, and maybe that's a bad thing. I mean, after all, you, you're probably going to outlive your parents, whereas a sibling you can expect to you know, live most of your life with, and that, that might be morally important, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the question is, you know, if we're really concerned about why aren't we were concerned about people having larger families? Well, you know, there was some study recently saying that the, the thing that you can most do to sort of limit your, your sort of impact on global emissions is to not have kids or something like that, right? So, uh, so the question is, you know, to what extent are sort of increasing these sorts of risks, the environment, um, are they compensated by the wonderfulness of having siblings? And the China policy thing, of course, is, is one way you might actually give incentives to people not to have kids, but it's a kind of a clumsy one. There's still the question mm. about what we ought to do, even if we think that there's a problem with the government forcing us to mm. do things. Yeah. Yes, I think we have good moral reasons to decrease the number of human beings we bring to the world. I think there are reasons to do with climate change. We can um, allocate our resources to other activities, our discretionary resources. We can um, send um, our money to Oxfam. We can spend more of our time volunteering. So there are also good reasons not to spend all, all of our energy and time creating people and then looking after them. Still, I think the, the activity of procreative parenting, of creating a child and then entering into a relationship with her, it's deeply valuable. And I also think that the relationship that siblings have is deeply valuable. So there are good reasons for having smaller families. We have good reasons not to go, not to follow China on this. But the state, a liberal state like Australia, for example, could put forward very good financial incentives for people to mm. stop with two children, say. So all the things we care about um, are realized mm. to some extent. So if we look at some of the reasons why it, there might be a case for having people have fewer kids, if we look at some of the reasons, we might find that actually reducing procreation is not, not the best solution to whatever the problem actually is. Yeah, so even if we think, though, that something like sibling relationships are valuable and there's something, aren't we sort of falling into the trap of sort of having this really biological picture? I mean, there are lots of children out there in need of homes, and, you know, if we create one, they're already there. We're mm. not bringing a new one yeah. into the world. If we have a child and we sure. want our child to have a sibling relationship, why isn't adoption the more morally preferable option? I agree, and I think that, unfortunately, people um, don't take adoption very seriously because they, they think that... Um, it will be harder to parent an adoptive child and that, that the relationship won't be as, as meaningful. But all the studies uh, on this show that people mm. are very happy with the relationship they have. Parents are very, adoptive parents are very happy with the relationship they have with their adopted children. So I think part of what needs to be done here is we need to dispel some of this myth around adoption and the state needs to do a better job of making adoption more accessible. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about what motivates parents to have a, a biological child. What kind of motives are at play? Because you see in adoption, people want, want they list preferences for a child that you know, has certain traits, you know, looks like them often. And, um, some of this is reasonable, some of it is perhaps questionable. Uh, so why don't, why don't we ask some people you know, how they feel about this, this tendency, right? Um, some parents would like to be able to select for traits of their kids genetically. Hi, I'm Matthew. I'm 20 years old. 
modifying someone's genes as you wish. That's, um, it's very strange because throughout all of existence, life has only changed through evolution, natural selection. You know, it's just like the healthy genes continue and the bad genes roughly die out. Hi, I'm Nicole and I'm 28. My initial gut reaction is no, because it's one of those things where I don't know where it would stop. Like, all of a sudden, are we going to have society's idea of beautiful and try and make, you know, all babies in that image because um, because all blue-eyed babies are seen as beautiful or whatever? You know, I just um, it, it makes me it makes me feel a bit icky, and especially at, at a time when we're trying to focus on diversity and acceptance of diversity. So one of the interesting things Nicole said was, you know, where do you stop? Mm -hmm. So it's worth pointing out that, you know, we currently do kinds of selection from the point at which we become aware that a child has been conceived. There's genetic screening for what are referred to as sort of chromosomal abnormalities. Yeah. I mean, is that itself going too far? Are we kind of expressing an unacceptable attitude towards people who have been born, who have these chromosomal difficulties um is it a is if we found out that someone uh would lack mobility is that is that something that it's it's permissible for us to think that we would want to sort of protect against where do we draw the line yes i think we should uh draw the line between minimally decent lives and those that are not minimally decent lives so i think interventions that make it the case that we have the conditions to me to lead minimally decent lives should be welcomed and the fact that they're not natural is neither here nor there because we already accept a number of uh, interventions that make it the case that we can lead minimally decent lives but yes once you draw a line between lives that are good enough and then um, interventions that aim at enhancing people's mm -hmm. abilities in different domains then we risk creating further inequalities and also um, allocating resources that could be spent in uh, in areas that where we have much greater need. Mm, yeah, I think it's worth emphasizing that, um, you know, enhancement, there's a risk that it's going to become competitive in, in ways that, you know, healing doesn't have to be, right? If if what we're doing, if, if parents have this ability to, you know, shape the straightness of the nose of their child and eye colour and height and all this kind of thing, it'll raise the bar in terms of norms of appearance, right? And then everyone will have to, everyone will feel compelled to do it because everyone else is. And this can be, as you said, it can be extremely wasteful. I mean, after all, a lot of biomedical know-how and technology is going to go into this kind of process. We could probably find better uses for, for those resources, right? Uh, but what about this evolution thing? Um, Matthew brought that up. Uh, evolution's always, you know, got us as far as we have, and a lot of people feel uncomfortable about taking over. I think people were worried about the unintended consequences of this uh, intervention. I think they worried that we we don't know all the results that uh, will come about. And I think I understand why people are worried about this. I think there is a, an element of unpredictability mm. that um, we might not be factoring in with this uh, intervention. Yeah, so just to, to push back a little bit, uh, you know, from when a child is born, parents are doing all sorts of things to confer advantages on their children. Mm -hmm. um, and they certainly are not just concerned whether or not their children leave minimally adequate lives. They want them to live good lives. 
And so, you know, why should parents only be able to start caring about that stuff once the child is actually born? Why shouldn't they, if they can, take more cost-effective means of intervening earlier mm. so that they ensure that their children just have adequate lives, not just have adequate lives, but they have the likelihood of having very good lives? Mm-hmm. Well, I think parents can um, allocate some of their resources to make it the case that their children lead good lives, not just minimally decent lives. But when it comes to these interventions, we're actually asking society to allocate some of some resources to creating the technologies that will allow interventions. So there's a difference there. Um, and then there we need to care about issues of social justice and we need to make it the case that families are not disrupting uh, fair equality of opportunity. So yes, by all means, once you are in a, in a relationship with your child, you want to teach her a different language or stimulate her and enhance her, as it were. You should be allowed to do that within the, within the relationship. But with these technologies, we're asking society to, to some extent, subsidize mm-hmm. your, the conferral of benefits on the child. Mm. We need to consider all the interests at stake here. Yeah, I think the, the ethics of procreation, I mean, we've, just to sort of sum up, we've, we've approached it as if it's a, you know, an individual thing. It's about the ethics of, you know, how, how parents behave. I think it's one thing I've learned um, is that it's pretty inseparable from some pretty deep social questions. Parenting, after all, isn't just something that people do in isolation from the society around them. It's actually deeply embedded in, in social practices and, and norms and, well, even technology. Maybe that's why the questions are so hard. Dialogues is an Ethics Matters podcast. It was produced by Snodger Media and funded by a University of Melbourne Engagement Grant and the School of Philosophy at the ANU.